0: Thank you very much for coming out on this uh, rather cold day, but I suspect some of you might have uh, uh gotten to the point where you had cap and fever so you could uh, uh find an excuse to get out of the house uh, welcome to this session uh as you know we uh, uh tradition is that we start on time and that's why we uh, going right now. Uh, Cost for lunch today is special price, $14, uh, and $2 for coffee if you're only having coffee. Uh, If there's any students in the audience, uh, you can actually get a meal for $5. So just indicate uh, that you're a student when uh, Annalise comes around to pick up the money. Uh, As you know, the presentation is uh, 25 to 30 minutes, and followed by lunch, and then question period. So save your questions for the question period. There are no questions during the presentation. Uh, other than that, I'll just tell you that it would be a really good idea if you turn the phone off or put it on silent. It, um, it just makes things much easier and uh, the uh, talk is recorded by Shaw TV, uh, and to be broadcast later in the week. And we are very appreciative of uh, Shaw coming every Thursday. If uh, anyone don't know Trevor Page, uh, you should, because he's been part of SACPA for very long time now, <clears throat> and he was on the board of directors for many years, and uh, made it easy for SACPA to function in many ways because we have procedures and rules and uh, bylaws that fits what we need to operate. So we're very thankful for Trevor' effort in that regard. He's also. Uh, Retired United Nations uh, official who was big part of the food program around the world in his working days. Uh, he probably won't get into too much of his experiences, but there, there are many, and he's very familiar with the United Nations. <clears throat> uh, I think he's a very appropriate person to speak about uh, sustainability goals, that uh, he's uh, gonna give you his thoughts today, whether they're sustainable or whether they're attainable or not. And I think it's a very important time in, in, in our life, uh, in, our, our, in our existence right now is there's a lot of issues that needs to be addressed, and many of them are possible, but it's just a matter of uh, willingness, politically, political willingness, I think. But Trevor will tell you more about that. So without further ado, I invite you to uh, welcome Trevor to the stage.
1: Thank you, Knud, for that introduction. And Oki, good afternoon, and a Happy New Year to you all. Uh, I'm extremely impressed to see how many people have come out on this cold, cold day to talk about, among other things, global warming. (laughs) Hopefully, what I have to say won't make it colder for you and it'll warm you up. But as the decade ended a few weeks ago, political commentators were trying to take stock of the major problems that we faced around the world and where we stood today. Most of them concluded that the picture is confusing, and we're into uncertain times. Back in 2015, and I do hope in retrospect, that we won't come to look at 2015 as the end of our period of enlightenment, But just five years ago, the governments of the United Nations, including Canada, of course, agreed to a set of 17 goals that would make life better and more sustainable for future generations. We call these the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, and we committed to attain them by 2030, just 10 years from now. The SDGs go far beyond the eight Millennium Development Goals, or MDGs, that we agreed on in 2000. And those were to reduce extreme poverty by 2015. Well, we haven't done that. Of course, the SDGs would cost much more than the Millennium Development Goals, But our governments agreed to boost their contributions to attain them. They had come to realize that we're rapidly overpopulating the planet, depleting our natural resources, and destroying our environment. Since then, a wave of populist nationalism has swept over much of the globe. Support for intergovernmental organizations, like the UN and NATO, which has kept much of the world safe, most of the world safe, since World War II, but support for those organizations is much in decline. Now, it's against that backdrop that we need to look at the uh, these 17 goals, or as we call it, Agenda 2030, to see whether the multilateral approach and the goals themselves are in fact still realistic. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over... Um, The 15 sustainable uh, goals, I'm going to go over quickly all 17 of the goals, and then I'll come back to climate, hunger, and migration, uh, which are all interrelated. Migration, in fact, is not one of the goals, on the contrary. It's largely the outcome of insufficient progress on attainment of the goals, and it is a major issue. So, these are the 17 goals. No poverty, goal number one, no poverty. End poverty in all its forms. And the international poverty line is $1.90 US. So, obviously, everything is relative, including poverty. What $1.90 buys you here does not buy you something elsewhere, et cetera, et cetera. Goal two, zero hunger. And the goal is to end hunger, achieve food security, and improve improve nutrition, and promote sustainable agriculture. Knud, in his introduction, talked about sustainability, and you'll see that sustainability runs through most of these goals. Goal three, good health, and well being. Ensure healthy lives and promote well being for all at all ages. Goal four quality education. Ensure inclusive and quality education for all and promote lifelong learning. Goal five gender equality. Achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls. Goal six clean water, and sanitation. Ensure access to water and sanitation for all. Goal seven, affordable and clean energy. Ensure access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern modern energy for all. Goal eight decent work, and economic growth. Promote inclusive and sustainable economic growth, employment, and decent work for all. Industry, innovation, and infrastructure, goal nine. Build a resilient infrastructure, promote sustainable industrialization, and foster innovation. Goal 10. Reduced inequalities, reduce inequalities within and among countries. Goal 11, sustainable cities and communities. Make cities safe, inclusive, resilient and sustainable. Goal 12, responsible consumption and production. Ensure sustainable consumption and production patterns. Goal 13, climate action. Take urgent action to combat climate change and its impacts, impacts, plural. Goal 14, life below water. Conserve and sustainably use the oceans and the seas, and marine resources. <coughs> Goal 15, life on land, Sustainable, sustainably manage forests, combat desertification, halt and reverse land degradation, halt biodiversity loss. Goal 16, peace, justice, and strong institutions, promote just, peaceful, and inclusive societies. Goal 17, partnerships for the goals. Revitalize the global partnership for sustainable development. Well, that's quite an agenda. But wouldn't the world be a better place if we actually attained it? Now I'll go back to goal 13, climate action. Climate change is the most serious problem the world has ever faced. It affects everything and everyone. We're not on track to limit average global warming to 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius. That's the upper safe limit, according to the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We're currently heading towards a 3 to 4 degree rise. The IPPC, that's the UN panel, warns that a four degrees of global warming could lead to, and I quote, substantial species extinction and a rise and large risks to global and regional food security. Of course, those are only two of the consequences. There are many more. Despite the many warnings and havoc, caused by the increasing frequency of extreme weather. Two-thirds of Venice was underwater back in November because of abnormally high tides. Australia is burning up, you've all seen it. Our oceans are warming and sea levels continue to rise. Last month, the UN Secretary General warned that if we're not able to defeat climate change by 2050, over 300 million people in low-lying coastal areas will be at risk. Most are in Asia and the Pacific Pacific region, where coastal cities could be wiped out if there aren't enough sea defenses in place. We need to be building seawalls, not just in Asia and the Pacific. There's quite a lot of American ports too that are gonna be in serious trouble. That, despite all this, we've yet to agree on meaningful action to achieve our warming climate. The US exit from the Paris Accord was seminal. COP25 in Madrid, was a failure. We hope for some forward movement at COP26 in Glasgow in June. We seem to be like the proverbial frog in the pot of water slowly boiling away on the stove. We seem paralyzed. We keep wanting to put things off maybe two or three years time. But meanwhile, drought followed by floods is ravaging parts of southern Africa. Just today in Johannesburg, uh, the regional director for the World Food Program put out a release and warned that 45 million people are at risk of starvation in southern Africa. I've actually given the press release to the press that are here today, the TV, and to the Herald. <sighs> uh, Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Mozambique are particularly hard hit, but the surrounding countries, too, are all in trouble. If what we're seeing today is the new normal, we haven't yet seen the type of action needed to protect ourselves and the planet from the climate emergency which is on us. Now, I'm gonna try and show a few images to illustrate what what you know and I mean. You know what that is. It's a uh, cornfield burning up because of drought. It's not far from here. And you know what that is. And we have lots of these in Alberta. And Australia is, as I said, burning up. And that's what happens. And that's not not far from Lethbridge. We also have our koala bears. This is at Waterton, after the Waterton fire. This is the polar ice cap that's melting. I was up a couple of years ago um, north of Svalbard, and it's the northern Arctic, and that is the ice cap you see in the back there, which is melting. And that's the Antarctic glaciers collapsing into the sea. Sea levels rise. Hunger. First, the numbers. 821 million people undernourished in 2017, 821 million. 237 million were in sub-Saharan Africa. Poor nutrition causes nearly half of the deaths in children under five, over 3 million children a year dying. You know, we were making real progress on reducing the number of hungry people until three years ago, but in the last three years, the numbers have been rising. That's mainly due to population increases, but wars, civil strife, and then the natural, natural causes, drought and floods, caused increasingly by abnormal weather are important factors too. By 2030, there'll be an additional two billion mouths to feed. We can certainly produce enough food to feed them. That's not a problem. The question is, how many will be able to afford to buy enough to eat? It's not a problem of food production. It's a poverty problem. So, this little girl here is hungry. She's collecting her food rations in Bangladesh. Bangladesh, in fact, is one of the countries that's made quite a lot of progress on not just um, hunger, but also on, on literacy, and especially literacy and education of girls. This little boy is in South Sudan. I took that the last time I was there, and South Sudan, this was in the south of the Sudan, which is now the country of South Sudan. And it's in serious trouble again this year. I'll now move on to migration climate change, hunger, migration. It's not one of the SDGs. The massive flows of people we've seen on our TV screens in recent years is a combination of refugees fleeing from war and economic migrants. More and more people have been leaving their homes and countries in Africa, the Middle East and South Asia for better and safe prospects in Europe. More recently, large numbers of people from Central America have, began leave, have begun leaving their homes and trying to gain entry to the United States. But there are even larger numbers of people who are internally displaced in their own countries. We call these internally displaced people or IDPs. And the distinction, the distinctions are important because refugees have rights to protection and aid under the 1951 Geneva Convention. Economic migrants and IDPs, internally displaced people have no rights at all. And they're the larger number. While some IDPs are forced to flee to other parts of their home countries because of civil war or armed conflict, others move on for economic reasons. Many of the displaced were subsistence farmers before they had to move. Around the world today, there are about 71 million people that have been forcibly displaced from their homes. Of these, about 26 million fled to other countries as refugees. So, the refugees are the smaller proportion of those displaced. Most of the world's refugees though, in fact, 84%, have been given asylum in developing countries. Not developed countries, developing countries. Turkey, for example, is temporarily home to over half of Syria's 5.6 million refugees. There are many more than that internally displaced in Syria. Kenya has hosted half a million refugees from Somalia and South Sudan for almost 40 years. 40, four zero years. Pakistan has housed over a million Afghan refugees for even longer. In fact, there were three million uh, back in the 80s when I was involved there. South Africa and in Kenya are also destination countries for economic r- migrants. It's not just US and Europe. The better off countries in Africa, like South Africa uh, and Kenya, are also countries that people try to get to. <coughs> Most of them enter illegally. Of course, Western countries still take in refugees and economic migrants but some are becoming decidedly less welcoming. Were there to be greater progress towards attaining the SDGs that I just outlined, many of those on the move would prefer to stay back home. And this is really important. Africa's population is set to double by 2050, set to double. David Beasley, who currently heads the United Nations World Food Program, where I spent many years, said on TV uh, just last month that in the next 25 to 30 years, 200 million people, 200 million, could be displaced. And they will try and go somewhere. A particular concern is the Sahel. It's a part of Africa that's not not that well-known in Canada. So that's the Sahel, Stretch from Senegal over in the west, far west on the Atlantic Ocean, across to Chad and Ethiopia as the next country. Sahel is actually an Arabic word. It means on the fringe of. In this particular case, it means on the fringe of the Sahara Desert. So the Sahel has always been a marginal area. It's pure desert, scrubland, and right in the far southern extremity, there's agriculture. The people that live right in the Sahel are mainly herders, but it has become, since we've destroyed Iraq, and uh, almost done it in Syria. Afghanistan's in trouble. Where is Al-Qaeda? Where are the terrorists hiding? Right there in the Sahel. So it's not just a climate change, marginal area problem, it's also the home of terrorism. Canada has some troops in Mali, they're about to be, uh, with the UN, they're about to be withdrawn. Uh, This is also the Sahel during the great Sahelian drought where I spent a couple of years, there were a million of these spread all over that area. That's also the Sahel, Burkina Faso. Uh, Look at the desperation on that woman's face. She's lost everything. She's not going to turn up in Italy or Germany. But her son might, because she's got nothing. Needs to live. People don't just sit there and die. They either move, or one of the family moves, and sends back money. I'll say just a few words about the global contact. Compact on Migration and Refugees. In response to the mounting crisis, most of the world's nations, 164, agreed uh, back in 2015 to a plan we call the Global Compact to handle, to put in order there's a chaos in terms of these boatloads of people fleeing in, coming in illegally, uh, people traffickers, etc., etc. 164 member nations signed up. The United States, Hungary, Austria, Italy, Poland, Slovakia, and Chile did not. They have other ideas on how to handle the problem. Now, I outlined the SDGs, progress has been slow. The UN Secretary General is becoming openly critical of countries not living up to their commitments. Of course, the attainment of the SDGs will be expensive, and developing countries need help. That was part of the deal. But foreign aid is down. Only the Scandinavian countries The UK, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Turkey, and the UAE meet meet or exceed the UN target of 0.7% of gross national income. Canada is at only 0.28%, a quarter of what Lester Pearson was the one that gave us the target years ago. But we have made progress. Uh, with the World Food Programme, for example, says 216, there are 216 million fewer hungry people now than in 1990. And that was despite a 1.9 billion increase in with the world's population. Polio, leprosy, river blindness are on the decline and smallpox has been eradicated. Now, we are approaching 90% adult literacy. There have been enormous gains in girls' education and few forced change in the world, so much more than the education and empowerment of women. So what do you think about the SDGs? And what do you think about the multilateral approach? And what do you think we should be doing here locally, us? I think with a warmer, drier climate, we could be well-placed to grow all that extra food that the world is going to need. And I'm going to skip that. And that, you've seen that one. But this is what we're doing here. And we've got to do more. This was the climate rally a few years ago. And there, people outside our MLA's office, former MLA's office. You know, in democracies, we have to use the democratic system. We elect people and we have to tell them what we want them to do. We have to do that with our city. We have to do it with our province, we have to do it with our country. We know how to do it. We just have to be more persistent and larger numbers. You know, I'll skip that, but I'll come back to it in the the question hour. Very good to see this, young people out in Lethbridge this year, this last year. Of course, some people don't agree. This was a Yellow Vest rally. This is what I'm excited about. I've been trying to find out for the last couple of years what we're gonna be doing here, right here in southern Alberta, in terms of water to irrigate the crops that we grow. The climate's gonna get drier, It's going to get warmer now. Just a week ago, a new website has been launched by uh, Professor Stefan Kunstl, who's here with us today. www.albertaclimaterecords.ca. They've put together data that we all need, historical data on climate from uh, 1951 to 2017, right up to date, and climate projections from 2041, 2041 to 2070. If we know what we're in for, we can plan for it. Farmers need it, planners need it, we all need it. So thank you, Stefan, for doing that. I'm ending here, because that's what we are. Not we here, of course. We get out on the streets. This is the world so far. Thank you.